Uh, I am very happy to be able to introduce these two guests. And you should be happy because the way that the format is going to work today is that uh, many of you will have an opportunity to uh, ask them questions. This is not a formal paper presentation, uh, but rather uh, a conversation. And so what's going to happen here is I'm going to briefly introduce them. And, uh, you know, being the, I don't know, department head or old man in the room, whichever way you want to characterize me, I get to ask the first couple questions, and then we're going to turn them over to, uh, to you all. So, first of all, I'm going to introduce Bobby Chase. She is uh, currently the uh, editorial director at DC Entertainment. There's our, our water supply. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> okay. Is that it? Yep. Oh, okay, I didn't see it. it was cleverly <laughs> delivered. Um, working on DC superhero titles. She joined DC in 2011 to launch the New 52, working on titles in the Batman group, such as Batgirl and Nightwing. Prior to that, and I'm not going to go into detail here because I'm going to ask you to, but she spent 17 years at Make Mind Marvel Comics, uh, serving from roles from assistant director to editor-in-chief and executive uh, editor. She's won a number of awards, including a variety of comic industry awards, but also the Entertainment Industries Council in partnership with the National Institute of Drug Abuse, the National Institutes of Health and Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Prism Award, a GLAAD Media Award nominations, and has been consistently ranked as one of the industry's top 10 comic book editors. And she has edited over a thousand comic books. And so, I just figured that out this morning. Yeah, throw so that in. one of our <laughs> questions, I asked her earlier what that involved, and she said that she's the one who staples them all. So <laughs> yeah, I don't believe her. Uh, and our other speaker is Marjorie Liu, who is an attorney, but also a New York Times bestselling author of over 17 novels. Her comic book work includes X-23, and if you visit my office, I have a little figurine <laughs> of X-23. Black Widow, Dark Wolverine, and Astonishing X-Men, uh, for which she was nominated for a GLAAD Media Award for Outstanding Media Images. Um, her upcoming comic book, Monstrous, will be released by uh, Image in June. She also teaches a uh, class for us here uh, at MIT on, uh, and, oh, and yes, on comic book writing, and also has taught a seminar on popular fiction at the Voices of Our Nation workshop. So first of all, let us all welcome our guests to the So like I said, I get to ask the first uh, couple questions, and the first one is basically going to be to ask you each for a quick backstory. In other words, how did you kind of get to where you are now in terms of uh, the comic book industry, and I don't know who wants to go first, but uh, <laughs> we're going to be like nice that. We're like, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess my story goes to show that there's no one one right way to get into any job, especially writing. Um, so I was in law school, and well, I should back up. Um, I didn't start reading comics until I was 18, and my friends in high school had comics, and I didn't really get it. You know, they were always you know, hoarding their spawn and like all their other comics and I just, and they were like, they were very secretive about it, you know, and I didn't understand like why, why they were always, you know, pouring over them because um, they wouldn't share. So, and, but also I didn't have access to a comic book store until I went away to college and there was a little comic book store uh, just down the street and so one day I wandered in and um, sort of, you know, started poking around and picked up some X-Men, some Wonder Woman, some Deadpool, Punisher, you know, scurried home, and I became an addict. Like a total, like overnight, I was an addict. And so for the next four years, I was, you know, in that place like twice a week. You know, it was ridiculous. Um, I collected all these old back issues. By the time I moved out of my dorm, I had like four like long boxes. I think it was actually even more than that. It was crazy. And um, so, but I never actually imagined myself writing comics. I just loved to read them. Um, so I, went, I go to law school. And, you know, I love law school. I didn't really like the idea of being a lawyer, but, you know, I thought this is my fate. I shall succumb to it because I am a good Chinese-American girl. I'm a good, I'm a good daughter of an immigrant. I will be a lawyer. And um, so I graduate. I, uh, I pass the bar. I'm looking for a job. And while I'm looking for a job, I'm like, okay, I have some free time on my hands. I am going to write the novel that I never – I always wanted to be a writer, and I'm finally going to write the novel I never allowed myself to write because I've done it. I have fulfilled the family wishes. I, I'm a lawyer. I'm going to sit down and go and do this. And being an A-type personality, I ended up writing this book in a month. 
um, it was a numbers game. I told myself, like a you know typical like OCD person, that if I wrote 3,000 words a day, I could write a novel in a month. And that's what I did. And, um, and I spent two to three months revising it and sent it out. And eight months later, I'd sold it. And I didn't have an agent. I just sent it to slush piles. I did my research, went online, you know, typed who will take submissions without an agent and just went that route. And I got very lucky. I got very lucky. Um, I got a four-book contract out of that and basically said, screw the law. Um, <laughs> I, my parents wept. <laughs> my parents, like, they wept. I think they still weep. Um, I still, every now and then, like, like I can hear, like, <sighs> the pain. But, um, and I just decided to write full-time, which was, in retrospect, probably very foolhardy, but I just threw caution to the wind. I'm just, I'm going to do this. So, um, I'm writing full-time, and, and this is, like, a long-winded way of telling you guys how I got into comics, but um, <coughs> my agent had a little son, um, and... I met with her on Halloween, or around Halloween. He's running around in his Spider-Man costume. And I'm like, oh, I love Spider-Man. I love comics. And she's like, well, guess what? Um, I know an editor at Simon & Schuster, and they just signed a licensing deal with Marvel to publish um, prose novels based off of their, their characters. Uh, why don't you submit a proposal? And I was like, okay. So I, I did that, and I ended up writing an X-Men novel. Now... All of these books had to go through Marvel, and they had to be approved by Marvel. And it happened that the editors at Marvel liked the work I did on the book. And I heard that through my editor. And so that gave me the courage to go up to like their head of recruitment at New York Comic Con and hand, them, hand him my card. And I said, well, if you ever need a writer, <laughs> you know, here I am. And amazingly, he actually was like, okay. Now, it took a couple years because it wasn't just like, you know, just come and do this. We wanted to find the right project. So about two or three years later, I started writing NYX, which was a, um, it ended up being a six-issue miniseries about uh, homeless mutant teenagers living on the streets of New York City. And so I moved from that to Dark Wolverine, uh, from Dark Wolverine to Black Widow, Black Widow to X-23, X-23 to Astonishing, and I just sort of, you know, hopscotch my way from one book to another, uh, learning as I went, because I had no idea how to write comics. I loved reading them, but I had never written one in my life. I had never made the attempt. And so if I can do it, anyone can do it. Because basically I learned by going online and reading sample scripts and taking sample scripts and, um, and my sense of rhythm and timing just from reading a lot of comics and basically just figured it out. And fortunately I had like great editors who, you know, my first editor, John Barber, was a wonderful mentor and he would, you know, sort of steer me you know, when, when I wasn't understanding things and I wasn't doing things, like, in the right way. Um, but that's how I got my foot in the door. And, um, and I was very stubborn and very relentless, and I really love what I do. And, uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's great. Mine, mine is a, a, a starts out a similar girl's story and then I didn't mm-hmm. read comic books either. Um, well, except for... Archie's and Richie Rich when I was little. We could go down to the drugstore with my brother and I in the summertime and pick those up. But um, I went to college and I was an English lit major and a theater minor and I did uh, design work. I wanted to be the next Adolf Appiah or um, just doing set designs and costume designs. And um, I, got a, I got an offer after college to go do an internship at a, at a theater in New York and I had to turn it down because I needed to start paying back my student loans. So um, I got a job with a, a then New York designer, Bill Blass, from the costume stuff, and then was looking for a magazine or, or, or book, because I always considered myself in line to do pu- book publishing, because that was my next great love. Um, I'd learned, really, I'd learned to edit from my father, who uh, was excellent at critiquing my own writing, and would, unlike my mother, who's, who did things for me. I would always tell her, no, no, don't do it. I want to just tell me how to do it. My father was very good at, at being an editor and telling me what I was doing wrong and how to improve my writing. So I loved that. Um, so I saw an ad in the New York Times back when jobs were posted in the New York Times <laughs> um, for a monthly graphic publication. And that could have been anything, really. It could have been Vogue. It could have been, it could have been you know, Harper's. It could, have, it could have been the New Yorker. And I applied, and it turned out to be Marvel. 
And uh, I went and interviewed with um, an editor, Bob Budiansky, who was working on a thing, a massive opus called Secret Wars, and uh, got a job as an assistant. Uh, I took a proofreading test, and he said, do you have any questions for me? And I said, yes. The proofreading test had been a Fantastic Four letters page. Mm -hmm. And I had asked him, does it matter that I don't know who the Fantastic Four are? (laughs) And he said, no. He said, we don't want people with preconceived ideas of what comic books should be. Then we get fan fiction. So yes, you're hired. (laughs) So the the 17 years, that's what you're going to... Oh, you want the whole 17 Uh, years? Yeah, maybe maybe a Reader's Digest condensed version. Sure. So I, I started out as an assistant editor in the special projects department, and we did like Kool-Aid Man and, and you know, book deals with, with other publishers and, and prose novels, some. And um, then I uh, moved into regular D, uh, D, uh, Marvel Universe Publishing and was an assistant editor and then an associate editor. And um, when I was an, a line editor, I, I created, I, I created a, a group of books called uh, Marvel Edge. And I used to get the dregs because I think Marvel at the time had one female editor. Oh, um, so yeah. and there's, that seemed to be the status. So there was Louise Simonson, who's now a writer, and when mm-hmm. she left, she was replaced by Anne Nascenti, and then Anne Nascenti left, and she was replaced by me. And but we didn't get a lot of respect in the office, especially those of us didn't who didn't know every single you know 300 issue run of the Incredible Hulk or whatever. So the books that I kept getting were sort of lousy and. And a friend um, who I'm now working for, Bob Harris, said to me, if you want good stuff, you've got to create your own. So I took a bunch of backwater characters, um, like uh, Blade the Living Vampire and Ghost Rider, and um, sort of Spirits of Vengeance and Night Stalkers and, and Morbius the Living Vampire, and created this line of books, and it did very well. <laughs> so it, it turned into a, uh, when they, they actually split the company for a time and had um, several um, editors in chief, which I don't recommend for any publishing company because I thought it was a terrible idea. Um, I got my own line that way, but then eventually put the company back together smartly because one mm-hmm. of the best things about Marvel and DCU are, are the shared universes. Yeah. Can I asked you this earlier, and you said you staple things. So it, it sounds like as an editor. Just based on what you just said there, there, there is a matter of creating a larger vision because you've got, like you say, all these divergent lines of, of books that have been written over the years and plot lines that have been dropped and details and that kind of stuff. So, But you're not just a continuity editor. You're a vision person of where it should go in the future. Is that...? Sure. An editor can be that. Um, okay. The, in the, the perfect instance, you, you just hire the team that, that has that vision and just and then to just nurture that team and that vision, uh, starting with, you know, you'll, you'll get uh, you know, a concept for, for a book or a storyline and then, and then finesse it if it needs to be finessed. And uh, an editor is responsible for hiring the whole, the whole team, which is writer, penciler, inker, colorist, and letterer, and uh, trying to put together the best team for the best cohesive look. That's important. But yeah, you're their cheerleader, you're their scheduler, uh, you, you work with story. You're also the, um, the, um, the the champion of the character. Um, mm-hmm. In other words, that unlike you know a toy company, you're, you have to be on model and it has to look exactly like that. I mean, Hello Kitty always looks exactly the same. Mm-hmm. There's certainly more variety in how uh, a Batman or a Superman or a Wolverine will look, mm-hmm. but you're still you're still the uh, the, uh, the guardian of your characters. And that's what you—that's what you're doing now, but on a large—or would you say that that's what you're doing now, except on a larger scale, over the entire DC universe? Sure, I read 60 books a month, <laughs> and then I—I I, from—I don't read all the plots, but right. for new material, we read everything. From okay. Them. And then uh, I read every book out before it goes to the printer. <sighs> that's a lot. It's a tough job. That is hard doing. You love that job. <laughs> you have a better job. <laughs> I think it's more relaxing, maybe. <laughs> maybe. All right, well, I'm going to ask a, a couple more general ones, and then we'll turn it over to the, the audience. And uh, the, the first one is just, you, know, you both have been doing this for you know, different lengths of time, but have both been around for a period of time at this point. And I'm just kind of wondering what you see as some of the bigger changes that have happened in the sort of comic book. Uh, and I mean that both as a literary world and as a market. 
Well, it's interesting because, um, well, let me let me take one section. Just this, this. I, I find that there's far more discussion and awareness now around issues of gender and race. So, you know, when I first started out, um, when I first started out writing at Marvel, um, I was the only, um, I was the only woman. You know, I wasn't. I wouldn't say I was the only woman, but let's say. For example, we would go to San Diego Comic-Con and there would be like an X-Men panel and I'd be the only woman on, a pa- on, on stage with like 12 dudes. And I, I don't know, I think that's changing, it certainly seems to be changing at DC. Um, and it's in it, I don't know if it's changing quite as quickly at Marvel, but, um, but the fact is that no one was talking about that like eight years ago, like you know, six to eight years ago, but people are talking about it now. And I think that because the readership of comics is so diverse, you know, comic book readership is incredibly, incredibly diverse, but it's not reflected in the creators themselves. Um, You know, we talk about white privilege, we talk about, um, you know, we talk about, you know, um, like how, how little diversity is seen in pop culture, you know, all across the board, but in comics, it's very much the case that um, that the majority of creators are, and it's changing, but, but many of the creators are men and they're white, and um, and it's not it's not enough for white people to write people of color, characters of color. Like you need creators, you know, in positions who are you know writers and, and artists of color, you know, to tell their stories, share their experiences in ways that aren't being reflected now. And where I see where I see a difference now is especially I think there's been an explosion actually. Even though we're not always seeing it in mainstream comics, I think uh, for example in web comics, we're seeing an explosion of diverse voices that weren't there before. And I think um, there's like a trickle down effect, you know, where we're seeing all these very diverse voices, these very diverse stories. Um, and and the readership is far more vocal. And so I think that having a vocal readership and having other avenues in which um, creators of color can tell their stories um, is going to be incredibly useful to sort of changing this, this dynamic, you know, in which there's like a vast disparity between readers, you know, the fan base and, and who's actually creating comics. Oh, I agree with that so mm-hmm. much. I wasn't going to go there, but now, now that you have, sorry, no, no, I'm, no, just simply because that wasn't my first thought about how the comic book industry has changed because I've got thirty years. But yeah, it's so so prevalent the, the diversity, um, even even in the pa- past four years since we launched uh, this new iteration of of the DC universe called the New Fifty Two, which was a relaunching of the entire line, um, rebooting the characters back to their origins. Uh, we did an exit poll. That showed most of the um, the uh, buyers going to the comic book stores were still over ninety percent male, mm-hmm. and a lot of them were lapsed readers. But when you go to comic book conventions, there's, there's a sea of of more diverse faces. So many, so many women. No, when I go to the comic book conventions, um, are you guys having trouble hearing in the back? Okay. Yes. <laughs> no, when we um, when we go to when I go to comic book conventions. Um, it's like it's. I would say it's half women, maybe even yeah. over, like over half are women. When I go to signings, most of my readership are men and women of color, and uh, a lot of women. Um, and so this idea, this you know, this this stereotype that women, you know, are into comics, they're not into superheroes. Uh, it's it's an old old idea that needs to be washed away. Um, yeah. Yeah. DC's just made a concerted effort. I mean, not just, well, yeah, just, let's just say. Uh, 2015 is the year we decided we had to find new voices and new new characters and and more, more diverse creators. To, and I just, I've just come back. In fact, I got to Cambridge last night from a, a three-day conference out in, out in L.A. with uh, 60 uh, writers and artists who, who are launching uh, new new uh, DC books or the, the line in, in uh, June of this year and it was an amazing crowd mm-hmm. uh, just uh, showing new characters more diverse characters and 
I just got a picture uh, from it, and it, it's not a sea of, of, of white dudes, as mm-hmm. you say. So it was, it was <coughs> encouraging. I love that you have Gene Young writing Superman. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> One quick follow-up, and then I swear I'll stop asking questions. How much of do you think, uh, in terms of Marvel and DC embracing diversity, is a little bit of a response to market pressures of independent publishers getting there first? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, I just answered that question. In fact, too, we uh, we showed um, the creators a, a segmentation study that Warner Brothers had done just on that. And after the segmentation study was over, and it showed, you know, uh, this is this is your potential audience, these are what the millennials are into, you know. Um, I had three writers in the course of a half an hour come up to me and saying, well, the segmentation studies shows this, so maybe I should cater a, a character to be this. And, and I said, that's not the point of the market study. You know, we found you because you fit into the market study and we want your vision of the characters. We, we don't want you to think like marketers um, because when that happens, you know, we want you to tell your stories. That's that's why you're here. When when you put on your marketer cap and try to think like a marketer, then things like, oh, then somebody says, oh, well, you know, Twilight is really big, and Harry Potter's really big, so I think we should have Vampire Academy. Won't that do well? <laughs> then you get that, that hybrid that satisfies no one. Well, it satisfied my 11-year-old daughter, but almost no. <laughs> but I think after a while, too, it gets sort of ridiculous. Like, I think there's also the ridiculous factor where, you know, you know the readership is out there, or at least you can try it, you can ignore it, but it is out there. Um, and because of social media, all these voices, you know, bloggers, um, um, you know, people have, an, have a means of discussing these issues that are super, super important because there's... There's a sea of voices that are not being heard, um, and they're and not and all these stories that are not being addressed. I mean, like I'm a Chinese American biracial woman um, who wrote, you know, um, who's who's writing comics, and you can't tell me that my experiences haven't influenced the way I've I've told my stories in ways that are different from you know from from sort of the mainstream comic book creator. And I think that, um, and I think that if comic books, especially mainstream comics, are going to survive you know, in the long term, it's not enough just to keep having the same creators doing things over and over again. You have to bring in fresh voices from diverse backgrounds. They can't all be men and they can't all be white. And you know, again, I, I, I keep harking back to web comics and creator-owned comics, but you're seeing like a, like a diverse range of stories and great stories and great, you know, great character, you know, studies. And bringing that into mainstream comics is only going to, you know, make them fresh and relevant, you know, in ways that that are very, very necessary. Okay, I'm going to restrain myself and uh, throw the floor open to the, throw the, yeah, who wants to ask a question? Throw it over to the floor. Yes, here. Uh, kind of going off of that, um, I'm a little bit more connected into the video game industry than comics, and they have been having the same kinds of conversations and a little bit uh, perhaps more loudly um, in terms <laughs> of uh, there being a lot of kind of tension and friction and um, attacks on women developers and all this kind of stuff. So. Um, do you know if the comic industry and video game industry are kind of in conversation about these kinds of issues and how to deal with um, like really like fostering and nurturing diversity? I mean, I think that there can't help but be some sort of bleed over from one to the other. Um, and there, it's interesting because I think and I could be wrong, but I, I think that the, that the discussions of gender and diversity in comics haven't been met with the same hostility um, that I've seen in the gaming community. Um, now, that isn't to say there hasn't been hostility. I mean, I think there was this one, um, there was a, um, 
a, uh, a blogger, she, I don't know if I really call her a blogger, more like a, a, a writer at a comic book website who, um, who was making, uh, who wrote an article about, um, um, was it, I think it was like Starfire, but it was like, you know, but the, the uniforms that, that female characters often wear, you know, in comics. And I think she got rape threats. She was, um, she was plagued with, you know, sort of really some, you know, vile, um, some vile, tr- vile trolls. Mm-hmm. But I think for the, mo- I mean, there's, there's always pushback. Like every time I blog about or I write about um, um, the need for, for diversity and, uh, you know, more women in comics, I always get pushback. You know, I don't necessarily get rape threats, but I get people questioning, you know, my reasoning. Um, I get people saying, well, you know, um, you're, you're just making a big deal over nothing, basically. You know, um, just look at all these female characters. You know, um, why can't you just shut up and just be happy and things are going to take care of themselves? You know, you don't need to, you know, why are you complaining? You know, you're being a big old whiner, basically. Um, and so, again, I haven't, I feel like that the combo community, um, we're addressing these issues hopefully without, you know, the same vitriol, you know, but, um, but there's still pushback. And I think that I think that seeing what's happened with Gamergate and seeing what's happening in the gaming community has only made the the people in the comic book community speak up more, especially the like the the female activists, you know, all everyone who wants to see more diversity. Because we see this happening in the gaming community, we're like, screw that, screw that. You know, we want something better, and we're going to get something better. But we just have to keep using our voices, and people aren't going to shut us up. Right, the vitriol is in other places in comics, but I don't think it's it, it's about getting women hired. Mm-hmm. Um, but I used to do women in comics panels, you know, thirty years ago, and people would say, "What are you doing about getting more more women into comic books?" Or, you know, "What can we do?" And back then, I would, a lot of people would say, "Well, there just aren't that many women who are interested." And I think that was true at the time, but it's certainly not true now. Mm-hmm. And there are so many female editors, and it's male and female editors looking for for for. Uh, female creators, um, especially now, and we're mm-hmm. being a lot more mindful about that than, than ever before. They were saying that when I started, back mm-hmm. in 2008, that there, that, um, that there just aren't a lot of women around who are into comics. I mean, I heard that, I think I even heard that two years ago, <laughs> you know, like that, and, you know, from a, from a highly placed editor, you know, at Marvel, that there aren't that many women who are, you know, it's not, it wasn't just that there aren't that many women into comics, but there aren't that many women who would know how to write superheroes. Like they made, yeah, exactly. They, they were, they were, they were, they thought they were making a very clever distinction, but um, nobody knows how to write. Right, superheroes. I didn't know how to write superheroes. You don't go to college for that. Exactly, exactly. So it was, you know, and I'm just sitting there like, okay, uh, here we go. But um, yeah. Just like two years ago, I heard that, and I think. But you're right; people are being more mindful now because I think there is a dialogue. Yeah. You know, you have like the internet; you have all these these sort of you know internet comic book activists who are out there watching, yeah. and every yeah. and every time the comic book companies make a wrong move, they're like, ah, and you know, and and we have to talk about this. And I think these these moments of controversy have made people be like, okay, you know what? Like it's we gotta. Pay attention. Right. So I don't know if this is a fair question to ask both of you, but I can at least ask about from DC. Are, are there people responsible for monitoring social media response? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Daily. Hourly. Yeah. <laughs> we hear. I'm, I'm sure Marvel does too. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. Actually, but before we get any more questions, I'm curious t- to find out how many of you have read a comic book or a graphic novel. Okay. Okay. Yes. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Yes. Discourage it, to promote it, or to shun it, and just kind of questions related to that. 
we're, we, we own our characters, so we don't want to see a proliferation out in, on the web of uh, a fan fiction. We don't encourage it. That's it. <laughs> and there are different models, right? Mm-hmm. Because in some in some uh, Japanese anime, they, mm-hmm. they do encourage it because they think ultimately it increases the circulation. And, and but in the U.S., there is more of a, if I can say, this Disney mentality of controlling the the property. And so, as far as you know, that's kind of where DC and Marvel come down. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, speaking is just on the other side of the fence. Um, I wrote tons of. <laughs> <laughs> After um, when I, once I started reading comics when I was eighteen, I, I would say from eight, the years eight, like when I was an undergrad, I stopped when I was in law school because there just was no time. But my entire undergrad experience was basically one big fanfic fest, where it was like I was, you know, I was writing stories about Wolverine and going on adventures, and there were Mary Sues, and there was all you know this crazy stuff. But because um, it was fun, and but also. <laughs> And, but also, I, it made me a better writer. Because I was writing someone else's characters, um, I was experimenting with form. I was experimenting with everything from action to description to dialogue in ways that I hadn't before. Because writing fanfic took the pressure off of having to come up with my own characters. I could just, you know, sort of just play, you know, with this universe that already existed. And without that, without you know, all the hundreds of thousands of words I like, you know, poured out on my computer, I don't think I'd be the writer I am today. It really actually helped. Now that said, now that like, you know, now that I'm a novelist and like I, I have my own, you know, characters, when I think about other people writing fanfic off of my characters, I'm like, well, okay, like I don't, I don't look for it, I don't think about it, but I have to admit, it doesn't make me, you know, I'm, I'm like, eh, I don't know. But at the time when I was 18. I was just like, Shh, you know, let me add it. Um, yeah. Well, great, so, great writing exercises. Yeah, yeah. Another problem for, for editors, both, both major companies, is that editors are involved in the creation of big events, and we don't want to look at anything with our characters mm-hmm. that might influence us. We don't want to take anyone's ideas. We don't want to be accused of having plagiarized anyone on the outside, so we, we don't even accept, you know, Unsolicited submissions, which we, we just can't look at. Yeah, being a lawyer really took the fun out of writing oh, fanfic. Yeah. <laughs> because like after after I started studying law, I realized, oh, okay, this is what I was doing, and I just like, yeah, I can't, I can't do it anymore. That's what. That's besides not having time. Once I started law school, I was like, yeah, I'm done. In your comic book class, did you have them do any? Would you allow any fanfiction? Oh or? well, actually, one of I I will say because I wanted I wanted. One of my students is here. I um, I actually want them to get a taste of what it's like to write, you know, um, in like a universe in Marvel or DC. So I did one of the assignments was you can write like I gave them a list of characters. You can pick in a hat. You can write like a team book and see what it's like. Um, actually, amazingly enough, I think only one student out of nine did. Maybe one or two, and the rest actually just made up their own made up their own worlds because what happened was once the students started writing, I think Christina can attest to this, everyone had these great ideas. They didn't want to write Superman and Wonder Woman. They wanted to write their own characters. Like, everyone was dreaming up these fantastic, amazing stories, and they didn't want to waste their time on DC or Marvel. They had other things to worry about. They wanted to talk about, you know, um, aliens and, like, everything like that, and it was amazing. It was wonderful. So, yeah, I gave them the option. They were like, take it. Take it. Uh, maybe. Uh, kind of a similar vein to the fan fiction tension. Um, I, I think it's really striking how strongly the economic and legal dimensions of comic book characters and universes um, come to bear on, on the characters themselves. And uh, a great example was uh, your story of how kind of this splitting apart of the company creates a literal rift in a universe. So I'm just wondering how you kind of negotiate that as writers when you're approaching a character for the first time and how, or whether you have to kind of make an effort to separate the economic and legal lives of these characters as you try to give life to them or whether that's kind of a source of inspiration in some ways. I think a writer, and if you're going to take a character in, in a shared universe, just say Batman, um, the writer is very mindful of creating what we call the illusion of change. 
In other words, there's that long story. It's mm-hmm. not like the character Bruce Wayne, Batman, is going to change all that dramatically from point A to point B, but you want something, some you know, conflict that comes to a climax and leads to a resolution and comes to an understanding so that you know, he does grow as a character, but he just can't change that much because he appears in you know, at, least, at least six books a month. So uh, that's when supporting characters become important and uh, you know, the, the, uh, the red coats and the yellow coats and you know, who you can kill and who you can, who you can mess around with. <laughs> I found that it's interesting because when I was writing the X-Men, uh, that was a problem because the X, I mean, the, a lot of eyes were on the X-Men. So what Bobby said is true. You can have the illusion of change, but you can't actually, you have to take the characters on a journey but at the end of the journey, the reader has to feel like something happened, but really the characters can't be all that different. You have to, you know, you, you have to make it possible for the next writer to come in and be like, okay, well, you know, this is this is still this is still the same Wolverine. You know, even if he went on, you know, this journey in a previous book, this is still the archetypal character we all know and love. Now, in the case of books in which there were fewer eyes, you know, on the books, so when I wrote um, when I wrote Dark Wolverine, for example, when, when Dan and I were collaborating on that book, no one knew. I mean, Dan had written Dark Wolverine in his title, in his Wolverine title, but no one really knew who Dark Wolverine was. And so we had a lot of free reign because he, was, he wasn't quite a new character, but he was new enough where we could have the option to play. And so we played. And we, you know, we basically told the story we wanted to tell about this bisexual, biracial sociopath who was sleeping his way through the Marvel Universe and you know, messing everyone up from Wolverine, his dad, to the Fantastic Four, to Madripoor. And it was amazing and it was so much fun. I mean, we really had a lot of fun with that book. Um, I don't think it could be published today. I actually don't think, you know, pre, pre-Disney was very different, I think, to post-Disney. Um, and, but the same thing happened with X-23, where she had this history with... Um, in the Marvel Universe, but when I was given the book, I was basically told, okay, this character's been written this way, but here is an opportunity to do something new with her, and actually something radical with her character, if you want to. Because, again, she wasn't, she wasn't one of the big characters. You know, she was sort of a secondary character that people weren't entirely familiar with, but there was some fan base, and so, you know, they were just like play. Um, again, that wasn't the case with uh, Astonishing X-Men, and that was not the case with Black Widow. Um, partially because I was writing that Black Widow book at the time of the second Iron Man movie, and there were hopes to have a Black Widow movie eventually. So they didn't want to do anything too radical with her character, but I was allowed to push. I was allowed to push against that wall as much as I could. And, um, and I think we were able to do a pretty good story because, you know, because there was a little bit of leeway, but... Um, and I think he would say, too, even though we're working, I think having to work in, con- like in a certain constraint allows us to tell, it, sometimes it creates better stories. Because we don't, because we can't go all the way with characters, we have to find really creative ways of creating this illusion of change. And it's, it's actually very useful sometimes to have you know, those restraints put upon us. And sometimes we ignore them, too. Yeah. <laughs> For instance, um, our character Harley Quinn, right now she's in the most... Irreverent. I call it squirm malicious every month. I, I, we the editor says I, this just. I don't know if I can do this, and we we take it to legal, and they they, they <laughs> tell us how much we can push the book. But she's also in another book. She's in the Suicide Squad, and she's she's the same irreverent character, but not it's not over the top comedy the way it is. And, you know, it's, just, it's just a different genre, and we just allow the two of them to coexist, even though mm-hmm. she's in, she's not really in the same place in the universe. Um, let's go, let's go back here, and then we'll come back here. Going back to the thought of those constraints, uh, how is that? How is your experience working with those constraints compared to your experience in writing novels in your own universe and with your creator own books now? And I know that sometimes that, that the constraints do encourage a certain kind of creativity. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I guess you, you talk a bit about your experience of those two different things. Yeah, sure. Um, it's interesting because when I um, <laughs> I think when I'm, I always, I always, I have the problem of going like too far overboard. Like I can get too weird. Um, I can actually get too weird. So uh, when I'm writing novels, um, it's always sort of the I, I 
I throw a lot of crazy stuff into my books. Um, so I wrote a series about a woman covered in these living demonic tattoos, and they peel off her body at night to form her own army, um, and during the day they make her invulnerable. That's kind of weird. Um, but then I had to go the extra step of throwing in, like, time travel and the fact that the demons weren't really demons, but they were, like, aliens from another universe that had been, like, grafted on her body because, you know, through some advanced form of genetic engineering. And so I, I think, I don't know. Anyway, so, um, so, I mean, but on the other hand, that's really fun. It's really actually fun to be able to tell a story. And, and even though sometimes I probably should be told no, um, uh, and, I, and I have been told no. Um, it's nice, though, having the option to just really just throw my imagination out there, throw it out all out in the wall and see what sticks and try to make something really, like, interesting out of it. And, you know, and it's the same thing, like, again, with novels, with comics. Um, being able to tell, like, a story that wouldn't really fit in anywhere else. Um, so, for example, like, I've over the years, I've had like a lot of ideas for, for novels. And I would try to write them, but they would never really work. And I couldn't figure out why until I started writing comics. And I realized that the stories I had been imagining weren't really meant for novels. They were meant for, for graphic novels. They were meant for the comic book medium. And I just hadn't realized it, because I, I didn't have any experience with it. I just thought I was having like a weird sort of writer's block. But actually, it's just that this story fit better in this medium. But um, but no, like I, I have fun with it. Like I really have fun. I mean, it's I have a great time writing comics. I I had a wonderful time writing Astonishing X Men. You know, working in the Marvel universe. Um, but there is something really beautiful about then stepping back and just going nuts. You know, like in your own imaginary world. Um, it's, it's very self-indulgent, but um, but hey. <laughs> Bobby, is there an example where you've had to say no to something that you can share with us today? I have to say no. Any direction an author wanted to go that he's too weird or too... It's probably killing a beloved character. Nothing's really coming to mind. It's been a long time since I've had to say no, fortunately. <laughs> All right. That's not true. <laughs> um, I just thought of an instance where uh, a writer a relatively new writer, wanted to do something with uh, a Muslim-American character. And he wanted to to do a, an ongoing book where, and one of the big pieces of that book was um, questioning his own faith. And, I, and it was just about two months ago, and I said, I just think this is too much of a powder keg. I don't think a, a, you know, a white writer from the South, Presbyterian, should be handling that. You know, I, I don't, you know, I think you're, Imposing your Caucasian um, waspy background on something you may not fully understand. You know, maybe take it to, you know, friends in that community and see what they think. But un unless you can, you can come back and say, no, I have their support. I would, I would say that's a bad, bad thing to do. And about two weeks later, Charlie Hebdo happened, and I had a chance to talk to that writer two days ago and say, I think. I think we made the good the good call. Yeah. It's not that there can't be Muslim American characters, but you've got to handle it. Have to handle it. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I think Miss Marvel is an example. Mm -hmm. um, and of course the writer G. Willow Wilson is Muslim. Mm -hmm. But um, she uh, but that's an example of a book that has a Muslim, you know, character, a teenage character that's just an amazing book. And it's just hit like wildfire. Mm -hmm. Anika, and then I don't know your name. <laughs> You've talked about this a bit already, but um, you mentioned it just now, and I was curious. Um, how does the process of writing a novel, which is how you initially began, how is that process similar and different from writing a graphic novel for you as a writer? Are there particular techniques or different ways that you have to adapt and conceive characters? How do you structure that dialogue differently? It's a really good question. Did everyone hear it? Yeah, okay. Um, so it's interesting because um, I'm a very visual writer anyway. You know, when I write, I feel like I'm seeing a movie inside my head, So, which I think that helps um, to some degree. But um, the great thing about comics, it's, it's the perfect medium. It's the perfect middle ground between film and prose. 
So in prose, you have all the you have all you can capture so much interiority. All the interiority of the characters is there in a novel. Um, when you're when you're watching a film, in film you see action. <coughs> you see you know all these you see all these big set pieces. It's very you know it's very interactive, very er you know. But you don't get all the interiority. Um, comics are that perfect middle ground, and where in a single panel you get interiority, you get sound, you get movement. Um, and it's it's like the perfect it's like the perfect medium I feel like for storytelling. I mean I love writing novels. I love writing novels. I will never stop writing novels. <coughs> but writing comics offers me an opportunity to tell stories in vastly different ways that I that I never dreamed I'd be able to. Now, as to your question about how I go about doing this, um, it's actually it's you know the thing about writing a novel is that you carry the entire burden of the world on your shoulders. You know, really, like, you are responsible for 400 page, you know, I'm, I'm teasing here, but like about like 100,000 words, 400 pages of, of a world and characters and interiority, and it's your job to immerse the reader. You know, it is your job to create a world inside this novel that will suck a reader in and make them feel like they're living this experience. And when you're writing a comic, Half that burden is taken from you by the artist, thankfully. Um, and so having part of that, that, that load lifted is actually incredibly useful um, because it allows you to focus on different things. You still, as a scriptwriter, have to create a world. You know, you're not absolved of that. You still have to create the world. But, but the, the burden is not entirely on you. Um, and so, you know, when I'm writing a comic, I'm focused... I'm focused on all the same things I would be focused on in a novel. It's just that it's broken up in like stages, you know. And I'm focused like on, you know, it's it's not it's not one like constant stream. It's like scenes, it's moments, it's panels. It's that scene. In the, it's like seeing a movie, but but like cut up, you know. And that's sort of how I break it down. Um, it feels very. It's like a very organic process to me. Um, you know, it's like it, for me, it's like writing a novel, except just in smaller pieces. If that makes sense, yeah. Can I take it a little further? Yeah. Do you see? Do you see a big difference, or or is it the same? Your voice when you're doing a paranormal novel, mm -hmm. um, either as the narrator or or as the character speaking, as opposed to when you're writing a superhero comic book. It depends. It depends on the characters. It really depends on the characters. Um, it's not just I. I find that I'm able to. Um, I find I'm able to immerse myself in characters. So when I was writing Black Widow, I was very immersed in that character, and I felt like empathy for her. And that empathy sort of gave me the ability to, you know, write her voice in a way that was very different from um, from the voices of characters in my novels. You know, and because the you know all the characters in my novels are very different from each other, from one book to another, they all have very different voices and very different you know personalities and actions, and that reflects on their 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 um, their voices and what's you know what comes out and their thoughts. And it's the same thing with the characters with a superhero character. You know, they're all very different characters. So like writing Bobby Drake, you know, Iceman is very different from writing Black Widow, um, just out of necessity, but just also out of empathy. Mm -hmm. When you said earlier, off to the side, that you you could switch in one day from, you know, prose in the morning and comic books in the afternoon, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Of, you know. So in other words, it's just the character that immediately you just immediately yeah. get immersed into the character. And I then, get immersed into the and character. And the character just takes you. Yeah. Exactly. Huh? No. I mean, characters have always driven my work. Mm -hmm. So you know, the characters drive the story. You may have in my head, like I'm not very good at plotting. I'll admit it. I'm terrible at plotting. It's like my pants are like I write by the seat of my pants, you know, for better or for worse, usually for worse. But uh, let me tell you, because in comics you have to stay organized. I mean, this is a, this is a, this is a problem. I was I'm when I was writing novels, I was I didn't plan out novels. I had an idea, and it usually changed from the beginning of a book to the end of it. And so, um, but you can't do that with comics because you're giving the scripts out to an artist, and you can't go back and revise once the art's done. Like you're stuck. And then plus you have to send in descriptions to the preview catalogs. And, <laughs> 
the, you know, you get editor, you know, rightly so, wants to know what the entire arc will be, and they want descriptions of each, you know, each issue, and so they can plan, and it's like, that's good, but I'm just, I'm, I wasn't good at it, and it's taken me a while, but, um, I'm not even sure where I was going with that. But <laughs> but you're right. That is one of the pieces of the job that is unique. Yeah. That, uh, you know, you're also, you're also informing other writers what they can do with the characters. Exactly. So you really have to... You really have to know what you're doing six months down the line. No, it's, it's so important. Mm -hmm. It's so important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You had a question? Uh, so I remember when New 15 first launched, and I remember going to the local comic store, and like issue number one at Batgirl had like completely sold out. And I remember like hearing people discuss how they were having the fun recording with Bat in the Batgirl costume, but there's also like a huge uh, backlash, especially online, with losing Oracle, who had been like a huge part of representation for the disabled community. So how do you kind of reconcile those two? Well, by bringing in other characters who are disabled, but um, it, it was important to us to get get back um, the Batgirl because we, since we were rebooting, we were taking a lot of things back to the beginning, and we were also, I have to say, fixing some things, some overlaps that had occurred in, in the universe with a lot of characters filling the same space. We had a lot of female characters who were very similar to one another who had the same relationship to, to Batman and the same relationship to the story and we were just trying to consolidate things and just make a choice to, to bring back a, a one character. Yes, that was, uh, we were mindful of it but we decided it was worth it to get Barbara Gordon back as, as Batgirl. Yes, you. Uh, mm. uh, for the thank all, sorry. And I'm quite impressed by the fact that how the market making is working on the comedy industry. The editors searching for the writers who are suitable for some characteristics. And I'm quite curious about the details about how the data of what how the decision is made. What kind of writer should we procure? And do you do surveys? Is there any data analysis or or just some hyper creative mind that decide? What was the next step of the whole franchise? I mean, in terms of bringing in new creators, or just um, where where the franchise is going? Yeah, specifically, what you mentioned, if, if when we want to reach this place, this piece of market, we will hire this writer. Well, you you sort of have to become a little bit hands off when you when you hire the the creators because they have to have a chance to to speak with the character I and mean, we can bring them in, but they're the ones who are going to tell tell us where the characters are going. So um, you, you really do, you hire the people who are going to lead the character in interesting places. So we don't hire people and then tell them what stories to tell or, you know, it, there's there's no formula when, once they're in the door. we Yeah, we hire them because we think they're cool and they're going to be fun, you know? <laughs> so there's a lot of that going on where we just, we're, we're fans, we've, we've read their work and I think it would be fantastic to work with them. There's a lot of that. Actually, sort of on that note, sort of, do you have any tips for working with teams? Like you send the, the magic letter back in time, the things you do before that collaboration, what do you say in it? Oh, my favorite form of collaboration when I was an editor was uh, having everybody on the same uh, email chains. And now some, letter, some editors are using Skype and, or, or Link, which is a to do that and actually have everybody, you know, visually connected. I, I think that's a very important part of the process. It also helps in, in, then they, they're, they're all cheerleaders and they're all schedulers, so they're not screwing the last person on the chain. So, for instance, I, I edited Teen Titans a couple of years ago, and, and the, I was on a chain with the writer, Pencil, the inker, and the colorist—not the letter. The letter was somebody in-house, but we were all, you know, once the uh, script was was approved, um, I sent it to all of them with the deadlines, and then the conversation began. Oh, this is great! You know, I love it, Scott. And oh, Brett, that page was awesome. And and uh, Andrew, wow, you killed it with that coloring. And because there's so much work to do, these guys are producing. 20 pages a month. It's a lot. It's a huge burden, especially for, for the, uh, for the, for the penciler. Um, so it's good to have cheerleaders, and it's also 
and important when, when it comes to scheduling because the, the last person on the chain is usually the one who gets screwed the most. So <laughs> <laughs> if, uh, if you start right off saying, well, this is, you know, this is when uh, your, your pencil started getting the work, the colorist knows when he should be, sh- he should be getting material so that he's not the one who, who uh, is left in the cold to, to color 20 pages overnight. <laughs> that sucks. It is. It really <laughs> sucks. <laughs> Uh, Teresa, and then I'll come back to you for now. So I was wondering if you can comment on the recent announcement that DC is coming out with 24 new comics that focus on diversity, and I'm not sure what that means exactly in terms of what's coming out and you know what how they're interpreting diversity. Are we going to see you know superheroes of color? Are we seeing more women? Just you know what exactly does that mean, and you know, what, what does DC have in mind? Actually, I think all of the books have been announced now uh, as of last Friday but yeah it means it means a lot of things it means uh, diversity of, of creators and it means diversity of character so yes we we're being mindful of all of it there's a full spectrum exploration um, and uh, we, we started well even as early as the beginning of the new 52 and we probably should have been more mindful of it then when we were working on new characters um, to to make sure that that was the case, but really, um, both companies um, have characters that have been around, and well, in some cases, 75 plus years, and there are a lot of white male characters, as we said before, and so um, there's been a lot of uh, we're we're doing new new characters. Um, we're starting some books cold, which is which is a bit risky. You know, we're taking we're taking a lot of risks and just seeing uh, what will appeal to new readers. I, I do have to interject one quick question. I was in Barnes & Noble the other day. I'm historically more of a Marvel person than a DC person, but I saw an image of, of Batman that I'd never seen before, and it looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger circa 1980, just on super steroids. And I'm wondering, what? Where did that... Where did that there, there's a, a, an analysis that's been done about the sort of hyper-masculinization and even of, of boys' toys, and how if you extrapolate, like we've done with Barbie in the past, what the measurements would be like, that boys' toys, our action figures, are getting increasingly buff. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm just wondering, you know, as an editor, is that something you noticed, or was that conscious? Because I always thought of Batman as more slender and agile. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the artist, and in some cases we do let them kind of go. Sometimes, but uh, there are artists we won't hire because they'll, they'll do certain kinds of forms that are less uh, aesthetically pleasing than others. Um, but I, I, st- I studied life drawing in, in college, and I studied um, also fashion drawing. And uh, then at, at the same time, I, I started working in comic books. I was I was studying fashion drawing. And uh, you know there are all different kinds of forms. You know the life drawing, which is realistic, fashion drawing, which is elongated and slim, mm-hmm. and uh, co- comic book forms, which are both male and female. You know, hi- typically hypersexualized. Um, you know, over over ideals of of physical forms. You know, and, and strength. So uh, yeah, and in fact, the conversation. Uh, the online conversation. I'm pretty sure we'll be thinking of the same things about the character Starfire and what she was wearing. <laughs> and uh, um, I edited that book. Okay. And my assistant was female. Mm-hmm. And the two of us were were fine with it because it was, you know, we considered it sexy. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to get flack for that forever, I'm sure. But uh, you know, we we also want the male characters to look sexy. We were <laughs> one of the sexiest uh, male characters in in the DC universe is Nightwing, and we were very mindful of making him look very sexy too. So, yeah. Okay. So I was wondering, like, uh, kind of general comment that I feel like the visual narrative is, is a, a, a story format form that hasn't kind of peaked yet, and you know, it's I think it has strong cultural connotation with the visual narrative. It's it, it's images and words. It's either for a little baby or it's comic books and it's, it's not kind of appropriate for the, the larger masses. 
and maybe what you're doing around diversity is kind of trying to address like how do we take this story format which is such a great story format and and make it more appealing to the general populace you know and, and what kind of is there you know strong cultural issues in the United States that kind of affect broader uh, popularity of the visual narrative in comic books in comparison, say, to Japan and anime? And yeah, just kind of a general comment uh, or question related to that. Well, I'll, you know, it's interesting because there was a, um, a recent release of numbers that came out, I think, last week talking about book sales in 2014. Wait a minute, are we in 15, 2015? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay, so in 2014, um, graphic novel sales uh, went up by 12% and everything else dropped. And so more and more people are buying graphic novels and reading graphic novels in the United States. And not only that, there are more comic book stores in the United States than indie bookstores, than independent bookstores. Um, and so I think that actually comic books, graphic novels, I think they're, re they're reaching a much larger audience than than what we think, because uh, the sales don't lie. And I think that, um, and it's not just the superhero movies, I think that people are beginning to discover that comic books are telling um, really interesting stories. And it's not just in mainstream comics, it's not just superhero comics. Um, we're seeing really, really interesting narratives coming out in the independent world. Everything from, you know, Gene Young's The Shadow Hero to um, Adrian Tolmanet's um, was it sleepwalking, sleepwalking, other stories um, that are just, you know, very, very powerful, powerful narratives. And so, and I think that, you know, it, and books have always sold by word of mouth. And so people are reading these books, they're talking about them, you know, um, singing their praises. Um, we're seeing graphic novels in journalism. Joe Sacco does tremendous work in, in, in uh, journalism using, like, the, the comic book medium. So, and we're seeing uh, great work in, in graphic memoirs. Ellen Forney's Marbles, for example. Um, and so it's just, I, yeah, I, I don't think, I think it's reading, reaching a very large audience and it's going to continue growing. Well, you're talking about the segmentated, the, the different age ranges of the yeah, audience? Well, then? I mean, I think that, I mean, I like the visual narrative. And I mm -hmm. think it has a massive potential as a story format. And like sometimes I think it doesn't, it's not as big as it should be in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And and I think that I've run into a lot of like strong feelings about the mixture of imagery and words in people's initial reactions of like, oh, this is for children. Huh. And that, uh, like in my own work and in my own universe, that's something I encounter a lot. And I think that that kind of initial gut reaction by a lot of people is, is wrong. It's not just for children. It's an amazing story format. And, you know, so just kind of that question of, like, I'm sure you deal with, like, it is an amazing story format. How do we get more people reading this? How do we, you know, make people understand that this isn't something that's just for children. It's, it's a great way of expressing story. That's, that's what I was trying to get. Yeah. When I started at Marvel in the, in the mid-'80s, I was told by our head of PR that her job was to keep Marvel out of the media. <laughs> nice. Make no waves. Nobody should know what we do, because we, even then we weren't all that we weren't all that controversial and subversive. Mm -hmm. But but there was still that danger, you know, that the, that everyone would think they were kid products, but they would pick them up and they wouldn't be for kids. And you know, our, our readership was probably thirteen and up. And now, as Marjorie said, all of those ways that comic books are growing and graphic novels are, novels are growing, and even in the past two years, the even the mass market mm -hmm. numbers, you know, thanks to Amazon and Barnes and Noble. They're just exploding. Uh, we are being more mindful about about age ranges and uh, and uh, labeling on books, but also we've got you know other divisions at least at, at DC and I know I know Disney does too, but Warner Brothers uh, consumer products doing more material for kids, and we're now considering you know how to work our way into that kids market. But the kids market is trickier. Is the, the little kids they don't read the way adults do, and they're not looking for that. That um, sequential storytelling and the continuing tales—you know—they have parents picking up the books, and it's a different—it's a different kind of purchasing model. 
And if you're talking about resistance, though, like the actual resistance to trying comic books or just this this prejudice against them, I mean, I wrote, I, I mean, I, I read romance novels, I, I write romance novels, and if you want to talk about prejudice <laughs> against the genre, go no further. I mean, you're, you're seeing it all in the news right now with Fifty Shades of Grey coming out, and people are like, ah, it's trash, ah, it's porn for women, bah. Well, you know, people love to dump on the romance genre, but it is a billion-dollar market. And in the same way that people like to trash some people, I think it's becoming, um, comic books are beginning to sort of get a reputation for being like, you know, an intellectual product. It's not just, it's not just for kids. But there is still going to always be that segment of people who are like, you know, I'm not going to read comics because they're beneath me, you know, or they're for kids. And either they're, either haters are going to hate and they're just going to, they're going to keep hating on the genre. Or eventually, they're going to pick up a comic and be like, oh, you know what, this is actually pretty good, and I eat my words. Um, but it just, you know, again, word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And I think that that eventually changes, you know, um, that eventually, hopefully, changes, you know, quote, hearts and minds. Um, in the case of romance novels, typically it doesn't, but <laughs> it's like... <laughs> right. Well, I do think there are more adult-age kids now than there were when I first started yeah. comic books. I think it's a lot more acceptable. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are all these superhero shows on, on television, and in fact, we, we've never even bothered to do adaptations of the films because they don't sell. People don't. People have never typically gone from movie theaters into comic book shops to look for, for, for comic books. But now that's changing. And, uh, and the, uh, you know, the, the Arrow comic book based on the TV show is doing gangbusters in bookstores. <laughs> so and it's been kind of a shock for us. So. It's a good show. We have food. <laughs> the end. So what I'd like to do uh, is uh, ask you to join me in thanking our uh, speakers for today. This has been great. And then I would invite you all to uh, migrate to the hallway where there's food and at least water. So thank you so much. <laughs>